One day, Ananda and the other monastics were hanging out in the assembly hall in Jetta's Grove, Anatta Pindika's Park. And they had just gone for their alms round, finished their meal, and Ananda was sharing with them all of these wonderful and marvelous qualities of the Buddha, these wonderful and marvelous qualities of the Tathagata. And as they were hanging out and Ananda was sharing this with them, lo and behold, the Buddha walks in. And they're silent and they greet uh, the Blessed One. And then uh, the Buddha says to Ananda, please, please continue. And of course, in my imagination, I could just imagine Ananda, he has to be at least a little bit nervous at this point. (laughs) Here the Buddha is hanging out and he's talking about him. And so he continues. And these are some of the qualities that he talks about, about these wonderful and marvelous qualities of the Buddha. That he was able to know all of the Buddhas of the past, their name and their clan, and that he spent a whole life in Tusita heaven before he was uh, Siddhartha. And that when he entered his mother's womb, this great immeasurable, immeasurable light shone in the earth shook and quaked. And then when he was born, jets of water came, were coming from the sky to bathe him and his mother when he was born. Pretty far out miraculous things. (laughs) And it's interesting what the Buddha said next. He said, that being so, Ananda, remember this too as a wonderful and marvelous quality of the Tathagata. Here, Ananda, for the Tathagata, feelings are known as they arise, as they are present, and as they disappear. Perceptions are known as they arise, as they are present, and as they disappear. Thoughts are known as they arise, as they are present, and as they disappear. Remember this too, Ananda, as a wonderful and marvelous quality of the Tathagata. I find it striking. And I feel this, this response from the Buddha is that he's very gently pointing out, pointing out to Ananda what is truly marvelous, truly miraculous. And that's seeing the impermanent nature of experience again and again. Why is it marvelous? Because just that act, seeing the arising and passing away phenomena, leads, leads to our liberation, to our freedom. And tonight, that's what I would like to share with you, is just some reflections about this quality of impermanence and how to get a feeling sense of it in your practice and and the importance of it. And and it really is so simple, right? It's it's being aware of what's happening right now. A sound, maybe a sensation, thought, emotion, and also being aware of what happens to it next. How it arises and passes away, maybe how it undulates. It, 
Impermanence is extremely important on this path. As the Buddha was lying on his deathbed, the last statement that he made to his monastics, to his practitioners, was Sabe Sankara Anicca, Apamadena Sambareta. Sabe Sankara Anicca. All constituent things are impermanent. Please strive on with diligence. This must be important if these were his last words. And why is that? It's because so much of, and you probably have noticed that, of of our stress and discontent and suffering arises because of this inability to come to terms with impermanence. This inability to really get it. And I don't mean on the intellectual level. Because, of course, impermanence is such a simple idea. It's more about how do you get it in your bones to actually live it, to breathe it. And the first thing I want to point out about impermanence is that I feel like what the Buddha is doing is he's giving us a specific frame within which to see our experience. So yes, we're being present here, but we're being present in a particular way with these particular sensitivities. And this is what we've gone over again and again, being sensitive to impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, or or not okayness, the non-self quality of experience. And these other frames, just what's going on in experience around sensation, thought, and emotion. Feeling tone, Vedana, being aware of the sense gates, all of these different frames to allow us to move forward with this practice of being present in a way that leads to, to freedom. And I think it's important just to name this because you might notice you could have a different frame for being present. You could be completely present and have a different frame. You could have the present, uh, the, the frame of trying to see everything that's green, all the things that are yellow, things that are made out of wood, things that are made out of plastic. You could actually spend three months doing that or six weeks. And it's not going to lead to freedom, to awakening. So these are specific frames because they unravel, undo the the dynamic of of suffering in our lives. And, And these frames I'm talking about, what I need to remember is it's not like I have to keep them in my mind. What I find is simply hearing these Dharma talks again and again and again, there's a sensitivity that begins to pop out in, in my meditation practice, and you might find the same. So I encourage you not to make a project of it, out of it, but to keep it simple. And I feel this is much of, of practice, is framing, framing experience. Because it helps me see things clearly that I don't see clearly, that I'm muddled about, that I'm unclear about. And, and I want to give a, a, one example also in the term of, terms of ethics, because I think it could also clarify what we're doing here. In terms of sila, or the ethical life, which we've been also emphasizing, 
There's this general frame of this training and non-harming. And a specific frame underneath that that has been so helpful in my life in terms of this skill, learning the skill, which is still something I'm learning, learning the skill of non-harming, is the frame of examining racial identity. Racial identity for myself. Right close by, outside of Boston, at Boston, in Boston College, there's uh, a woman, a researcher by the name of Dr. Janet Helms. And actually, one of a, a title of one of her books, I think, really says that she says, race is a nice thing to have. Why does she say that? Actually, just a little bit more background about her, because I think it's interesting in the context. In the early 1990s, she was, you could say, one of the pioneers that researched and put out these um, racial identity development models. So looking at identity development or along the lines of race. So a white identity development model, a black identity development model, a people of color identity model. And these models have changed quite a bit since the early 90s. But they were important, important in the sense of the importance of taking that frame to, to help clarify this dynamic within ourselves and the world that we live in. Because when you take that frame up, when I take that frame up, what I notice is it helps dispel the blindness that we've inherited that causes suffering. This is an important frame. It, it helps dispel the societal messages, those internalized societal messages that either oppress others or we use to oppress ourselves. And of course, there's many different kinds of frames in, on the ethical realm. But it's helpful because it cuts through our delusions so that we can live in the world in a different way, a different way of living, a different way of being. One caveat, sometimes the question comes up of, of how does this work? How does this work with this, this teaching on that self? The importance of identity, which I really want to name, identity plays a crucial role in terms of ethics. How does that interplay with, with not self? You gotta wait till next week. That'll <laughs> be the theme next week. Gaining clarity around uh, this teaching on that self, not seeing it as some kind of concept or construct, but, but something that allows an opening up to, to freedom. And also seeing in the interplay of that the, the importance of identity. And this frame of impermanence, and important because you might notice we can be blind to it and then end up feeling oppressed by it. And, and we can see these tendencies of the mind, the grasping, the aversion, the checking out, as these unskillful, reactive attempts to make impermanence go our way. As I always see sometimes when I'm on retreat, this attempt that I try to do of impermanence on my terms. <laughs> That's what I'm looking for. It hasn't been so successful yet. And that's why I practice. Some examples of this. 
impermanence on my own terms. One example is uh, around a car I bought after I left uh, the Zen monastery. So now I was a monk. Uh, as I've said, it's been, it was a, a great journey for my spiritual practice and it was not uh, the best decision for um, financial success. <laughs> <laughs> so when I got out of there, I was, uh, I was living in southern New Mexico and I was very grateful that I had a friend who sold me a car for $350, which I was very grateful for. And my friends would remind me, if you were to look at this car, you would think, yes, this is a car that you would sell for $350. (laughs) It was amazing that it ran. It was so interesting to see what my mind would do around it. So it worked, it was this Daihatsu charade. I don't know if anybody knew those. This this small car that had three cylinders in it. And... uh, it was getting me back and forth to work. And then things would break on it. Like the first thing to break was the electric window on the passenger side. And my emotional reaction was, I can't believe this. I can't believe this is breaking. And then the electrical window on the, on the driver's side, which right is completely crazy. I mean, if you were to take a look at this car, it's, of course it's going to break down. <laughs> But I had this, this emotional sense around this car that it shouldn't break down, that there was something wrong going on when the radio stopped working <laughs> and the air conditioning, as if this wasn't supposed to happen to my car. And that was the other piece. I could think about it being impermanent, but I really didn't get it. And also what got hooked into it, it um, not being impermanent was also it was mine. If your car breaks down, I have a lot of compassion for you. <laughs> I'd probably talk to you about impermanence and grasping and how we can't see this. But I'm not as hooked by it, right? I'm not as hooked by it because, because it's not my car. <laughs> Maybe you can relate to this. <laughs> So I can intellectually get impermanence, but I I don't deeply get it, not in my bones. And then, of course, on retreat, you might have seen this activity of being blind to impermanence, feeling oppressed by it. It's that, that pain in your knee or that emotion or the loud yogi sitting next to you. If only impermanence would be on my side and all those would change now. <laughs> or I notice sometimes my mind can get into what I call not mindful meditation, but bargaining meditation, which you might have noticed, which is I sit down and there's something difficult that's there and I have a willingness to be with it as long as it goes away as the result of me being with it. Impermanence on my own terms. Or on the opposite side, the pleasant, joyful, or profound experience, wanting to continue to the end of the sit, or the end of the day, or longer. Again, this trying to make a deal, impermanence, on my terms. Just one other story around this that I think exemplifies this. 
I used to, this is actually many years ago, right after I left uh, the Zen monastery, I was teaching meditation at a drug rehabilitation center. And uh, somebody had asked me to start a meditation program there. And a lot of these people were in early recovery. And any of you who've been in recovery know that those early weeks can be quite rough. And every morning we would sit together in silence. And one morning we were all sitting together in silence, you know, just a silent meditation for 10, 15 minutes. And in the middle of the sitting meditation, out of the silence, somebody yells, ring the damn bell. You ever thought that? <laughs> it was actually something so wonderful that somebody actually voiced it rather than just thinking about it, you know. <laughs> so impermanence on my own terms. So it's this fight, this fight with, with Anicca, with impermanence. The Zen master I used to practice with, he'd, he'd sometimes give a Dharma talk where he'd say, you know, here I am up here, I'm selling round trip tickets to heaven and hell and nobody wants to buy them. I'm selling round trip tickets to heaven and hell and nobody wants to buy them. What is he saying here? Right? That we find ourselves in this unceasing flow of pleasant and unpleasant and yet we're fighting it. We want the one-way ticket to heaven. Sometimes we can get in those bad states. I know I can, where I just want the one-way ticket to hell. But it's a round trip. Can we open up to that? We actually don't have a choice to actually embrace that, to be with the fluid flowing quality of that. Instead of getting hooked by these unskillful, reactive attempts, attempts to have impermanence on our own terms. I'm reminded of this poem by the Zen poet Ryokan. He says, to, follow, to find the Dharma, drift east and west, come and go, and trusting yourself to the waves. To find the Dharma, drift east and west, come and go, entrusting yourself to the waves. Can you learn on this retreat to entrust yourself to the waves, to the waves of impermanence, to the pleasant, to the unpleasant, to the joys and sorrows, to get it in your bones and your blood so that there can be a different way of living, a different way of being in your life. What would this look like to entrust yourself to the waves, to really get it on a visceral level? An image that I appreciate comes from a Taoist story. It's a story where one of the characters is Confucius. And remember, often in Taoist stories, Confucius doesn't look so great. 
here is Confucius, here with not only himself, but with his students. And they're, they're, they're at the uh, banks of this vast river, turbulent river. And down beyond them is this, this waterfall. And so the story goes, that's 350 feet tall. And as they're sitting there together, standing there together, they see this woman swimming in this turbulent water and they're shocked, they're, 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 they're frightened for her because she's going over the waterfall. And as they watch her, that's what she does. She all of a sudden disappears over the waterfall. And in a state of panic, Confucius sends his students out before him to run down this trail down to the bottom of the waterfall. And when they get there, and then eventually Confucius, she's already out of the water, so she's singing this song, drying her hair off. No problem whatsoever. And Confucius is amazed, he's stunned, how can this be? And so he goes up to her and asks her, what, how, do you, how do you swim? How do you tread the water? How is this possible? And so what she says, she says, I actually have no particular way I began to learn the art at the very earliest time as I grew up. It became my nature to practice it. And my success in it is now as sure as fate. I enter and go down with the water in the very center of its whirl and come up again with it when it whirls the other way. I follow the way of the water and do nothing contrary to it of myself. This is how I swim. Following the way of the water and trusting yourself to the waves. And Confucius uh, wants to know more. How do you do this? How do you learn this? And what she says again is quite striking. She says, I know not how I do it, and yet I do it. That is what I say that my success is as sure as fate. I know not how I do it, and yet I do it. That is why I say that my success is, is as sure as fate. So she doesn't know how, right? It's not an intellectual understanding, yet she knows how to follow it. This is important. I'll come back to this in terms of the insight we're going. It's not like we're going to have some kind of intellectual insight. Maybe we will on this retreat. But the insight we're looking for is more that, that ability to swim with such turbulence learning to ride the waves of impermanence, entrusting yourself to the waves. Skillfully being with rather than blindly reacting. And I want to point out the important thing about this image is when we learn this, it doesn't mean we're learning to swim with impermanence in such a way that we don't speak out about the things that we need to speak out against that we're merely blind to harm. Being silent in the face of harm in some ways is another, just another kind of blind reaction. Being lost in apathy rather than taking the, the chance to skillfully respond. Speaking out fluidly, you could say, with, with, with the qualities of wisdom and compassion. 
the person that comes to mind when, when I think about this is, is Desmond Tutu, uh, the South African social rights activist, the, the Anglican bishop, who played, his, he played a strong role in this, this uh, South Africa's transition out of apartheid which I think most of you know, a situation that could have easily been much more violent than it was. I was uh, struck how you could say he swam the waters of that turbulence. It was his speaking out that allowed him to keep his head above the water, to keep alive, to keep from not from drowning. It was the speaking out that allowed him to help the people of South, South Africa keep their heads above the water to know how to entrust themselves to the waves without drowning. In particular, one, one momentous speech that he had was in 1984. He had gone actually to Capitol Hill and he gave this scathing speech about U.S. policy towards South Africa. It was this uh, policy of uh, constructive engagement. And he pointed out how horrible of, a, of a, a policy this was, that it was actually in some ways just um, reinforcing apartheid and keeping the government in place. And over the years after that, what happened, it was quite striking how it happened, um, uh, there was a, a complete change in U.S. policy, much to the chagrin of the president at the time. It was Ronald Reagan, and even it was the, the Republicans that came up with enough vote to um, override his veto, where there was finally a ban, a ban on uh, a full economic ban uh, for South Africa, and then there was an international pressure. And it was that pressure that forced the apartheid government to the table. This too is entrusting yourself to the waves. This too is learning how to swim in a way that it's in your bones, in your blood. To respond to impermanence and not drown or be oppressed by it. So a little bit more of the details of, of now paying attention, this, this practice that you're doing and, and this impermanence that leads to spiritual insight. And again, as I mentioned in one of the uh, Q&As a while ago, just a few words about insight because this word can be used in different ways. It's often used in terms of psychological insight and tonight I'm using it in the context of spiritual insight. And during that Q&A, you might remember that I likened it to learning how to swim or to ride a bike. It's something that you know, but you, you might not be able to put into words. And sometimes when you're learning how to swim or ride a bike, sometimes you have this wow experience where you feel like you get it. But most often not. You're learning how to swim and ride a bike, and you're not even aware of it. It's the same with the insight into the impermanence. This insight is happening. It's, it's moving through our bodies. We're seeing it moment after moment. And that's, that's the, 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 the insight working. All we need to do is notice it. And then wisdom does its work of allowing it to get into our bones, into our blood. It's not thinking about it. It's just the bare attention to it. So simple. 
Simple as hearing the sound of my voice come and go. Also, this is important to know about insight is that insight is um, not always a great, wonderful experience. There are phases of, of especially the insight into impermanence, that can be incredibly destabilizing um, and uh, disruptive to our lives and to our meditation. Which makes sense if you think about it. Here we are, we've, we've spent our entire lives, or if you, if, if you believe this, entire lifetimes having a construct around trying to make that which is unreliable, reliable. We've created all kinds of strategies and personalities around this. If that's the case, that means sometimes insight might be exhilarated, exhilarating and it might be very disruptive. And I think that's important to know that sometimes the, the work that you're doing here on this retreat, the, the practice that you're doing, if it feels disruptive at times, that's sometimes a really good sign. We're here to dismantle some deep habitual patterns that aren't serving us anymore. Jack Engler, who I mentioned in my last talk, who um, actually his, his teacher was the uh, same teacher as, as Joseph. And I think they were there at the, close to the same time in India, uh, teaching, uh, studying under, I mean, um, Munindraji, as well as Deepa Ma. And was here in the early days of IMS, as well as BCBS. And he likened the, the, the unfolding of insight to a grieving process, which I appreciate because those of you who have gone through a, a grieving process, you know how messy it can be, which I want to remind you of. Often I feel like when I, I'm up here talking or us teachers are up here talking, we're all here doing you a disservice because sometimes we can make the path sound so clear and linear and step-by-step. Step. <laughs> have you noticed that it just doesn't have that feeling to it? <laughs> Phew, <laughs> you're practicing. It's messy, it can be chaotic. It's more like a grieving process that can have these all these different emotions to it. From the trouble and, and, and tumultuousness that comes with, with loss. Also, at times, the, sometimes the serenity and the acceptance and even the joy. Some of the most joyful moments of my life was right after my grandmother died. It was uh, an Irish wake. It was an Irish family. So this whole, it was, it was just, there was a tremendous amount of joy that was intermixed with the loss. And freedom, a, a kind of release. So many different flavors in this unfolding. I appreciated him pointing this out because I think it gives a, a better picture of this unfolding. This is the insight into impermanence, the flavor of it. When you're practicing and the thought comes up, is this insight? Is it not insight? Please don't worry about it. In some ways, there's, there's no way to know. And as I like to point out before, it's actually not even, even on our job description to figure out if it's insight or not. My job description is to show up, to notice, 
to be really kind to myself and to notice how things change, how they come and go. Just that simple. And seeing it again and again and again. Practically, what can help with being receptive to impermanence to really allow the fertile ground for this insight to to grow? Again, it's keeping it simple. There is the knowing or the awareness of what's going on. States of mind that we've been talking about. Joy, sorrow, maybe aversion, wanting, liking, not liking. There can be a quality of tranquility. There can be different sensations that come. Emotions. Certain feeling tones. Pleasant, unpleasant, neutral that come and go. So it's noticing what's happening. And then noticing what happens to it. How it arises and passes away. Just those two things. Knowing what's happening. And what happens to it. And I find what helps me remain sensitive to impermanence is having this question in my mind of what happens next? This is what's going on right now. Hearing is happening. What happens next? It's really that simple, that simple curiosity. And in big chunks and in small chunks. I find it helpful sometimes just to reflect on my day, big chunks of impermanence. The mind was so concentrated in the morning. And then I, I must have planned out the next 20 years of my life in the mid-morning. <laughs> mind wandering up until lunch. Sleepiness after lunch. Oh, a few minutes of tranquility in the afternoon. Right? Agitation in the evening. All these states of mind, this flow of experience that's happening on this bigger chunk, this bigger level. Noticing that. Just the simple noticing of the unfolding of your day. To to the very, very small, how the the sound of my voice comes and goes. Or a, a sensation can very, very quickly come and go. Even within a few seconds. Or another fascinating aspect of of experience, dividing up thought between internal talking and internal images. How there can sometimes be a shimmering of of an image that comes and goes. It doesn't even make a clear image and then it disappears. The bubbling up of a beginning of a word and then it vanishing. So from the big to the small, just noticing it. And you might hear in these examples, it's not just the rising and passing away. It's the, the alternation. It's the, the change that happens when something's hanging out. The Buddha speaks to this. He says, practitioners, these three are fabricated characteristics of what is fabricated. Which three? Arising is discernible. Passing away is discernible. And alteration while staying is discernible. These three These are three fabricated characteristics of what is fabricated. 
So not only arising and passing away, but how things can increase or decrease, spread or contract. So what happens next? Things to watch out for and not to try. Please don't try to catch the very beginning and endings of every single experience. I guarantee it will drive you crazy. I just have the intention, just the sensitivity to how things come and go. Just the feel of it. It doesn't have to be precise in terms of that. So I'm being aware of what's arising and passing away in a relaxed manner or how things changed. Also, one thing that just to be sensitive to, and please don't go looking for it, is impermanence can arise. It's like the mind is seen in impermanence in these different flavors. So sometimes impermanence, the things coming and going, has a smooth quality to it. There's a smoothness to it. Sometimes it feels very segmented or jagged. That which seemed to be one experience now has many, many different experiences that is happening very, very quickly. Sometimes it feels like everything's arising. You're catching the arisings of experience. Sometimes it's all you can see is how things are disappearing. Sometimes it's the noticing that things are not only disappearing, but there's a flavor of disintegrating. Certain states of mind can be intertwined with it. Sometimes it's fascinating. And like grieving, sometimes it's saddening. Sometimes there's a joy with it. Sometimes there's a sense of repulsion. Sometimes there's a a sense of agitation that comes with it or restlessness. Sometimes a disenchantment towards it. Just to notice these different flavors. In some ways we're here just to taste all these different flavors. And to also be aware of the mind that feels like um, it's looking for a certain flavor. <laughs> oh, I really want the rocky road flavor of impermanence. That's where it's at. <laughs> There's all kinds of flavors from the very pleasant to the very unpleasant. We're just there to see them. One is not better than the other. We just need to have the willingness to show up for them and to actually really taste it, to deeply taste it and notice it. And to let go of the reasons of why impermanence might have different flavors. Just noticing that things arise and pass away. Notice what happens next. Again, another reminder that I uh, mentioned in the last uh, Q&A is is also remembering that mindfulness is impermanent. It comes and it goes. This has been so relieving for me. Being curious about how there's an appearance of it and a disappearance of it. In the midst of still a willingness to be present, but that too comes and goes. It's not something that we have to take personally. A friend of mine, I don't know if this image will work for you, I I found it helpful. We were talking about this and, and, and... I am not familiar with this genre of TV shows, but she thought it was a good, good analogy, so I wanted to share it with you. And that's old uh, Star Trek TV shows. You might remember in the old Star Trek TV shows on the, the Starship Enterprise, they had something called a transporter platform. 
I know this from my friends, just so you know. I'm not a <laughs> and it was amazing. So this, if you remember, for those of you who saw the TV show, there was this platform that they would stand upon. And as they stand upon it, they would dematerialize. And then they would be beamed, for example, to a planet where they would rematerialize. And then when they wanted to be back on the Starship Enterprise, they'd go to the same place. They would dematerialize and rematerialize again. And she said, uh, and then she also pointed out that sometimes, at least in the early shows, there would sometimes be a character that would get worried or afraid of the whole, of the whole process of dematerialization and rematerialization. And then there would be some kind of accident that would be the drama of the TV show. I think for us in mindfulness, it's not that we get afraid, we just get frustrated. <laughs> Can you be okay with the dematerializing of mindfulness and how it rematerializes? And seeing it, it, that's just the way it is, a curiosity about that, a fascination about that whole process. The, the other thing I want to point out about this sensitivity to impermanence is uh, we are not conditioned to see it. In particular, uh, in terms of modern technology. The most classic example of this is a television or a movie but it can be seen around uh, computers and the internet and smartphones. And that's how images are um, uh, really basically shot at us. And before we can see the disappearance, another one is, is, is uh, there to stimulate the mind. So it's one stimulation after the next in a very rapid su- succession to keep our attention. And in many ways, what they're doing is we're, they're cutting out the, 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 the sense of things arising and passing away and trying to keep the attention a rapt attention. And we need a different attitude, a different quality that we're bringing to our, our uh, meditation rather than wanting this rapt attention that comes from, from the, the rapidity of modern technology. More around uh, this quality that I think comes from this poem by Ted Kuzer, who was a, a poet lower yet, maybe, maybe eight or nine years ago. He says, this evening I sat by an open window and read till the light was gone and the book was no more than a part of the darkness. I could easily have switched on a lamp, but I wanted to ride this day down into night. To sit alone and smooth the unreadable page with the pale gray ghost of my hand. This evening I sat by an open window and read till the light was gone and the book was no more than a part of the darkness. I could easily have switched on a lamp, but I wanted to ride this day down into night to sit alone and smooth the unreadable page of, this, of the pale gray ghost of my hand. Do you hear the turn in this poem? where he's sitting in the evening reading this book, and he actually could have turned on the light, but he doesn't. And he's there to ride the day down into the darkness, to be with that unfolding from light to dark, from being able to read to not. To be here for the waves of experience, to entrust yourself to the waves.
I feel like when I start to get into the mode of being sensitive to impermanence, there's a turn that happens in me that really can be quite beautiful and remarkable. And it's the experience of, of, of momentary experience calling me to wake up, that every moment is now a teacher. And there's something beautiful about when I get this on a, a, a feeling level. The Chinese poet Su Tung Po brought beautiful words, I think, to this turn that can happen in our hearts. This experience that he had in, in the natural world one evening that was his awakening, as if he was hearing the Buddha giving a, a sermon himself. This is his poem. He says, The sounds of the valley streams are his long, broad tongue. The forms of the mountains are his pure body. In this night, I heard the myriad sutras uttered. How can I relate to others what they say? The sounds of the valley streams are his long, broad tongue. The forms of the mountains are his pure body. In this night, I heard the myriad sutras uttered. How can I relate to others what they say? The sense of each and every moment a chance to wake up to the way things are. Each and every moment calling us to awaken, to have a freedom, to get a sense of entrusting ourselves to the waves. I want to name another aspect of impermanence, which is important to name, which is a particular flavor of it, which is the painful flavor of loss. For many of us, maybe not all of us, loss might have played a role of why you came to this practice. It could be a loss of a loved one or a loss of health a loss of safety or a loss of connection. Loss is one of the the fundamental um, painful experiences, the experiences that really marks suffering as a human being. And while still treading this path, there is this still this human experience of loss. And how do we navigate that? So I, I want to point out this might be a little controversial, but, but I found it striking. That's, um, if I can find it, the words of the Buddha when uh, the Venerable Sariputta and Mahamogalana died. He says a striking thing when he gets the news. Trying to see who he's speaking here. Oh, he's actually um, uh, speaking to the whole assembly. So he says, uh, says, this assembly, O practitioners, appears indeed empty to me now that Sariputta and Mahamogalana have passed away. 
do you hear what he's saying? So here he is, he's probably, there's probably hundreds of monastics in front of him. And he's saying, just with Sariputta and Mahamogalana gone, when I look out onto this whole assembly, it's as if the room is empty. I find it a striking statement because it's not a factual statement. Do you hear how it's an emotional statement? That's a statement of emotion and a statement of a kind of pain to look out upon a group of people and it feels empty. You might know this experience of when you're walking around in your days, if you've ever lost someone, and you're looking around and everything feels like there's something missing. But there's not anything tangibly missing that much. It's more the emotional quality. This to me speaks to the fundamental pain that comes with loss. And yes, it's true in this same, same discourse, the same sutta, the Buddha later on says, I do not grieve nor do I lament because I understand the nature of impermanence. So there might not be grieving or lamenting, but we all may never become free of a certain fundamental pain that might come with loss. I feel that the poet, the haiku poet Isa puts it well. He says, the world to do is only a world of do. And yet, the world of do, this world of do is only a world of do. Right? There's do, those little water droplets on the grass in the morning, and then it's gone by the afternoon. It's just the world of impermanence. This world of do is only a world of do. And yet, and yet we cry when we're torn by loss. It's the challenge of being human. It's interesting. Uh, Isa wrote this uh, after the, the death of his second child. And as you know, there's, there's no loss like the loss of someone who you think should die after you rather than before you. In, in some ways, we're here to learn how to navigate impermanence in all these different ways with more skill, with more grace, with more kindness and compassion to actually find the wisdom that's really there when we really get wisdom, when we really get impermanence, I mean, in our bones and in our blood. I'd like to end with a poem by David White that I think expresses the jewels that can come from really getting impermanence. It will be around this flavor of grief, but really getting the broadness of impermanence as well. This poem, The Well of Grief. It says, those who will not slip beneath the still surface on the well of grief 
turning down to its black water, to the place that we cannot breathe, we'll never know the source from which we drank, the secret water cold and clear, nor find in the darkness the small gold coins thrown by those who wished for something else. Those who will not slip beneath the still surface on the well of grief, turning down to its black water, to the place that we cannot breathe, will never know the source from which we drink, the secret water, cold and clear, nor find in the darkness the small gold coins thrown by those who wished for something else. Such an archetypal image of a spiritual journey. Not staying on the surface of experience, but slipping beneath the still surface into the black water. And what's found there, right? This, This secret water, cold and clear. And finding in the darkness the gold coins thrown by those who wished for something else. Seeing those coins, understanding this human situation that we're in, getting it in a way that evokes a kind of compassion for all beings. So may our practice here of entrusting ourselves to the waves of impermanence lead to the liberation of all beings. Let's sit for a few moments here. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.